Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Huh. I'm doing well. We have a third today. Hello. Hey, Stephen. What's up? I'm I'm doing great, man. How are you? Nice to nice to finally meet you, Derek. Put a put a voice to all the emails I've I've sent you over the last you know couple months since I joined Tuple. Yeah, we were just talking about this pre pre record about the fact that we haven't spoken before, but we've spoken about you a lot, and you are a savvy Cal customer. And I will give you the award for the most polite emailer into our support system. So congratulations <laughs> on the award. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. I'm honored. <laughs> yeah. So for those that don't know, uh, Stephen is my chief of staff, which is a role that actually came to after a little bit of wandering around. And so I thought it might be fun to kind of talk about sort of your origin story and maybe like zooming all the way back to like, how do you, how you first started like following me slash heard of Tuple? Yeah, it's definitely a winding road that my career has taken. So I I went to the Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, for a degree in computer science. That was that was many years ago now. I interned and did some like database architecture and design, wrote a lot of Perl. We had like a PHP website, so I was doing a lot of coding. And that's when I first, you know, we, we had a custom PHP stack for our web app. And I found Rails and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool and, and nice. And of course, you know, Ben Orenstein and Rails went hand in hand and still still kind of do. So I came across your name first. Then I think you had done some interviews on the bike shed and, you know, you were doing all your talks and things like that. So I knew of you then, but definitely not as, you know, the, the Ben that I know today. And then when I graduated from Georgia Tech, I, I moved more into a customer facing role just because it had always been, there was a very strong separation at that company between the developers and what the end customer would see. We didn't have a product that we were using ourselves, so we couldn't dog food it. And I really just loved seeing the end result in customers' hands, understanding why they were asking for things. So I moved to more of a customer success, account management kind of role at the company and grew there for the next several years to manage a team of three that was managing all of our, you know, I'll call them like whale accounts, the bigger ones that had a big impact on the bottom line of the company. And then I saw you tweeting about a, I think you called it ahead of getting things done or getting stuff done. And I'm a massive uh, getting things done methodology proponent. It's, it's one of, one of the passions in my life since I was a teenager is focusing in on all this productivity stuff. So it just stuck out to me because I remembered your name and I hadn't listened to this podcast until we started talking. I went back through the archives to like try and learn who you were as a person. But yeah, it just stuck out on Twitter and I wrote you an email and it was good enough to get me a conversation. And here we are. So I was originally looking for, I don't think I called it a chief of staff, but it was sort of like a chief of staff type position which was like someone like kind of multi with multi abilities, like able to execute projects independently, smart, capable, that sort of thing. And so I, I sort of put this Twitter thread together, like, is anyone out there like able to do these sort of tasks? Uh, and you were one of the people that responded. So back then, I was originally thinking that I wanted that person to be in person with me in Boston. And so I liked your email so much that I was like, well, let's talk anyway. And we did. And sometimes, somehow in that conversation, I was like, well, you know, I'm also looking for a head of sales. Uh, does that interest you at all? Yeah, despite no sales experience, I think it was just a good, it was one of those good conversations where I think we both were getting such an energy high from the conversation. There was lots of good ideas going back and forth. And I think 
we're of a similar mind. And I think it's why Chief of Staff is suiting me well in that I love going into an unknown territory and learning a good amount, a good enough amount to make a difference, but not necessarily specializing in something so far, just because there's so much in this world of software and indie hacking and company building. There's so much surface area. It's it's kind of fun going around and getting a taste of everything. And, and sales is an area that's always intrigued me, but has also felt like a little bit of a black box where like you don't really know what magic is going on in these enterprise conversations and emails back and forth and negotiations. So uh, yeah, it was definitely intriguing to me. Yeah. It's like after that conversation or like as we're talking, I was like, okay, I really want to work with this guy. He's like, we, we were totally like gelling super well. And like, I was really impressed with your email. And like, I, I have such a bias for people that write really clearly and really well. Like that just to me almost always signals uh, good brains. And so I was like, okay, I do want to work with this person. And I, I had been looking for a head of sales for a while. And all of the like traditional sales background people that I had interviewed so far had felt too salesy, basically, just like too culturally different from the rest of Tuple um, and weren't quite the vibe that I was looking for and like wasn't excited to work with them. And I just talking to you and like seeing how your interests were like very broad, like you were interested in diving into like, like various parts of the business. And so I was like, well, you have some customer success background already and you are a programmer, so you will understand our customers. Uh, and you have an appetite for trying things you haven't tried before. And our sales process is not so much selling as it is almost order taking and like moving a thing through a, a set process. And it was just like, I actually think this this might work. Yeah, I think it's it turned into a pretty decent bet just because everything was very order taking. I think if if the goal had been go out and do a ton of outbound sales... It, it probably would have been a, a worse decision. But I think since, you know, things were in a little bit of disarray and there were just a lot of, uh, you know, organizing and systematizing of that process, I think that's that's kind of where my strengths are at from that strong getting things done background and what I've been able to do on other teams. So I, I relished the challenge there. And then I think getting all those systems in place, you know, setting up our, we use pipe drive for our CRM at Tuple and, you know, setting that up and getting everything like a well-oiled machine making sure to hit deadlines and then helping you bend with some productivity stuff in OmniFocus, I think it just naturally led itself to, well, what's next? Because I don't really have a, a strong appetite to then jump into outbound sales and build a sales team and do the stuff that a arguably an enterprise salesperson should want to do and is probably healthy for a business to want to do. And that's when we came back full circle to this chief of staff role. Derek, any questions or thoughts on any of that? Yeah, and I was, I'm was i struck by the fact that your backstory is like, okay, computer science degree, pretty heavily technical, and then like, and then you sort of jumped into customer-facing roles um, that I think, you know, classically like developers kind of shy away from. I'm curious if you felt like, if you felt like kind of like a, a unicorn as you were coming up through like into the industry and like, I have, I'm actually not don't have an allergy to this thing and actually enjoy this element that a lot of developers don't like, like, have you felt like an anomaly, I guess? I have certainly been called that by anyone who has managed me in the past couple of companies, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it's something I'm incredibly good at. I would like to get incredibly good at it, but it's also really draining for me. You know, a conversation like even recording for AOP or, or hopping on a call with an enterprise customer, it's very draining for me. I'm I'm kind of naturally more comfortable sitting in a room working on code all day. That's where my energy level would stay super high. But 
I think when you have an inclination towards having conversations that aren't cringy, that can make people feel comfortable when you're just friendly and warm, I think that that comes out to leadership. And if you are that kind of developer who can get into a room and talk about a spec with a client and the client comes away from that conversation like, oh, I really liked talking with Steven. Like, when are we going to get to keep working with him or that kind of thing can be a real differentiator. And I, I think it's why I was pulled that way by leaders at my last company is, you know, we'd be working on a statement of work for one of our customers and they'd bring me in to do, you know, ask questions to help inform the schema design. And it slowly gravitated to me being in more and more of those conversations and then leading, you know, the feature scoping and then writing, helping write the statements of work all the way into managing a team that was writing, you know, five or six of those at any given time. It's a good reminder that you don't have to be it's not a binary thing. You don't have to be like, I am a super salesy person or I am a super introverted developer. Like, like there is a, there's a middle ground there that, that will serve your career well if you, if you manage to embrace kind of getting comfortable in that realm, but you can still be a highly technical person, you know, and serve well in that function. Yeah. And I actually found even that not doing coding all day allowed me to do it as a hobby and actually enjoy it a lot more. I was feeling really burnt out working on rail stuff on the side and then having a nine to five where I would go in and write Perl all day. I just didn't have the energy to do that. But as soon as I moved into a more customer focused role where I was spending a lot of time in my email inbox, a lot of time in meetings, going home and working on a hobby web app or getting involved with open source was just, it was so joyous for me to get in there and actually do some code in the evening versus before it felt kind of like a chore. So I, I think for me also, there's just a a balance there. I, I kind of have to have both in my life to be able to enjoy one or the other as a hobby. Are you still writing code today? Not as much. Uh, I have some hobby projects out there and I am on the core team of a, fra- of a web framework for the crystal language called Lucky. So I got involved with that late in 2020. It was kind of like, you know, mid pandemic. And I had heard a episode of the bike shed from the archives with Paul Smith, who Ben worked with at, at ThoughtBot, I believe. Uh, and he he's the creator of Lucky. And so, yeah, I got in touch with them because it's just finding different ways to scratch that coding itch and submitted some PRs. And now I'm mostly involved from a community standpoint. You know, I make videos on a site called Lucky Casts, uh, like educational content, kind of like Go Rails or Upcase, something like that. And then we're in the Discord all the time, helping out people getting started with the framework. So not as technically involved, still more of like at a community level, but definitely still very passionate about following all the new Rails versions and seeing what other languages are doing and listening to technical podcasts. That still brings me a lot of joy. Yeah, that has been a something that I think about a lot because, you know, as I grow my company, I know that there will come a day where I, <laughs> where I probably like scale back the amount of code writing that I do. And it's, it's always good to talk to other people who, you know, have a love for, for writing software, but also find themselves in a position where like, uh, I'm having to, you know, wear other hats and sometimes those other hats are are more important than than the code side of things but like i always fear like am i gonna just be unhappy not like creating all the time and how can i you know how can i stay kind of fulfilled and scratching that and um so yeah i just always like to like to find out how others are managing that yeah i think for for me there's a big part of the, the puzzle that is figuring out task management like for me i'm so that that gives me so much energy figuring out how to organize projects in my OmniFocus and make getting things done work throughout all these different phases of my career journey that that kind of scratches that same part of the brain for me where even if I'm not enjoying the 
the work I'm doing for the next 20 minutes, figuring out how to organize that in a scalable way for the role that I'm in that day is really satisfying for me. I want to jump back into the sort of timeline because I think it's it's like a good segue. So you're you're head of sales at Tuple for some number of months, and that's going well. Like the, you're, you've you've come in, you've cleaned up the process. It's super organized. Everything is up to date. We're hitting our deadlines. We're getting things done. It's awesome. And around that time, you and I did a one on one, and you were saying, you know, like I, I I'm I'm like kind of worried. Like there's like not much more to do in a way. Like there's like I I'm not super interested in moving into outbound sales and like filling a pipeline. But like the mess is mostly cleaned up and I'm just sort of like wondering what's next. And I had been also having this thought uh, like as I had worked with you a bit, which is like this person is like the you're, you're like the most organized person I've ever met. And you're kind of just like ruthlessly effective at getting a lot of things done. And those are my weak spots. Like you were you were like kind of the perfect yin to my yang. Um, and working with you in that context was like, okay, like this person is super strong where I am not as strong. And like and I, I there were like a, a prime example was... I sent out this weekly email to the company like twice in a row or two or three two or three times in a row being like here's what's going on this week and the the response was like pretty universal like these are really helpful this is nice to see but like I just like couldn't reliably build that habit I was just like I don't want to do it this week and so I just kind of didn't do it and it was just like this useful thing that like should have happened that didn't happen and I was like this is sort of a that's sort of a small issue right now but there's this broader issue of um, just like my own effectiveness in running tuple and so I eventually pitched to you and to Joel and Spencer, like, hey, what if we made Steven part-time head of sales? Because honestly, there's not that much there uh, at the moment. And moved you over to chief of staff and, and increasingly made that your main responsibility, probably also eventually hiring a different head of sales, TBD. We did it. You like, I pitched you on that. You were super into it. Joel and Spencer were into it. And so we made that move. And from my perspective, that has just been like, pretty awesome and I, and since then i have been i've been singing the praises of this to a lot of people like adam in particular um, like having somebody paired like I, I sort of i guess i'm sort of like on the creative side and having someone who is a more on the analytical and rigorous and reliable side uh, has been super super nice for me yeah i think the pairing of that like chaotic ideating i just throw things against the wall with someone who's very practical of what's the actual next step to make that to get that done and have we thought about how realistic it is to tackle it i think even filtering those so that they're not hitting other people on the team you know being playing a little bit of that devil's advocate in conversations where i'll just take the opposing side to whatever view you're offering just to provide a foil to wherever you're at mentally i just i mean it's why i think tuple's effective right like pair programming you just get another perspective any other perspective is going to add value to whatever you're working on. And I think it's the same way, whether you're writing an email or deciding on your next hire or building a company, the value is just, it's huge. It is. And so Joel and Spencer, and actually pretty much everyone at Tuple had been pairing regularly with someone else. Like everyone had their pair. And for a long, long time, I just, I didn't have a pair. And so I was working on these like sales things or marketing things or hiring things by myself. And it was pretty lonely and kind of terrible. And then when you officially became chief of staff and we started like doing these pairing sessions, my like quality of life at work went up a lot, even just beyond like, oh, I'm getting things done. And, and like that, that premise of like, oh, I'll be more effective with Steven kind of by my side. That has been true. But also just the like, it, and also it will be more enjoyable is, is very true. There are a lot of parallels between creating software and then like creating systems that run a software company, you know? And I think you touched on that, Steven, where like that those sort of speak to the same part of your brain and the same give you the same like 
same highs that come from like from like figuring out a process, you know, and like I think about the pace of decision making that happens with building a product and how like it is fatiguing sometimes to just be like on an island and making all those making all those decisions alone. And I've definitely I felt like in the last couple of weeks when I've as I have brought on Taylor to help on the product front, just like having a developer there, um, someone else who can speak the same <laughs> speak the same language and I can like start to like uh, I'm starting to up my rigor a little bit on the way I like describe projects instead of just like a one liner. Now it's like, okay, I need to be a little bit more thorough, but like having a a sounding board to talk through, um, you know, this even just even just a tiny feature, like this is how I'm thinking about architecting it and, and like communicating that with someone else. Like I already, I can feel the improvement of quality like like it's hard to have a conversation with myself about it and so there are always blind spots but just having another person just makes things feel a lot easier so i can see how that's like super valuable on the on the business front too yeah there's there's that idea of in programming rubber duck programming where you just set a rubber duck on your desk and talk to it as you're working through problems and i feel like sometimes that's all that ben and i are doing when we're on a tuple session is we're just talking out loud while we're writing an email or something. And even if the other person's not super engaged and pairing on the email, it's just nice to have another human on the other end listening that you know you have to articulate your thoughts about and make decisions. It's been particularly useful for me too because we have different proclivities. Like I am like, oh, I have an idea. I want to do it right now, really fast. And I think you, you're you very good at being like, okay, um, is there anything else we should think about before we do this thing? You're like... Are there any reasons to pause before we pull the trigger on this particular action? Uh, which is super useful because I definitely am like the, the rush into it kind of person. Uh, so that's that's nice. Uh, and also the like, you have, I think, saved me too from various things of like, hey, have you have we communicated what we need to communicate to the team about this thing? I'm like, oh, right. Yes, other people exist. Yes, that's good. Hey, is there a plan in place for what's going to happen this like a week from now? That thing that we talked about? Like, oh, geez. Yeah, that's right. That deadline is coming. So it's been that, that's that's super useful to me. Yeah. And I think that's the the kind of thing that getting things done and having that just always on in my head leans into so hard because even, you know, like you're going to be adding two more direct reports pretty soon. So that's like our next touch base this afternoon. One of the topics is going to be, you want to renegotiate those weekly one-on-ones? Like, is it is it time to have your calendar stacked full of touch bases all week? Are you ready for that? Or do you want to renegotiate those to spread them out a little further? All those kinds of like watching commitments on your time, something that I do subconsciously for myself and I can systematize easily, I feel like just improves every member on the team. So how did you get in so into getting things done? I don't remember. It's funny. I was like, I was thinking about this yesterday and I don't remember how I heard about getting things done or David Allen, who's the author uh, and creator of the methodology the first memory I actually have is after I was reading the book when I was like 15 or 16, I made my dad drive me to Home Depot so that I could buy a bunch of those. Uh, it's this material called Lexan. It's like a whiteboard, basically. It's like a clear whiteboard that you can put on your wall. And I just bought so many sheets of this and attached it to the walls of my bedroom and had my project list and my next action list. I was very strict by the book, as I'm sure you can imagine, Ben. That was my first implementation was when I was in high school and I had all my, you know, tests and projects that were due. And I had a YouTube channel at the time I was trying to build where I was doing like League of Legends commentary. And I've, I've always had a lot of projects and, and things going on. And that just cut to the core. Once I had emptied out my mind onto these whiteboards, 
it just felt so nice and so meditative and zen and clean. It was just, it was addictive for me. And I think since then it's just been continuously listening to podcasts and reading articles and putting everything I'm practicing through, through the ringer in each role. And that's the nice thing and why I am still such a staunch advocate of GTD is my, I've done so many different kinds of work. I've done the work that's all out of JIRA or linear where you're pulling tickets and working on those all day. I've done a full house renovation personally. It has a lot of moving parts. I've done customer facing stuff where all of my work is housed in email. I've done architecture work where you're making a lot of product decisions that are kind of ethereal and you don't know where to quite keep them. And the system has always held up. Like I have to make changes, but I've never had that thing that I think a lot of people have when they're moving roles. You know, they're moving from a developer to a leadership role where, hey, everyone, like what software should I use? What should I like? This part of it is breaking. I need to go fix it and, and make it easier to meet with people in a recurring way or manage the hiring process. I've never really had that, which I think speaks to the strength and flexibility of GTD in general. Yeah, so I, I've been using OmniFocus for doing to practice GTD for years now, and I sort of thought I knew what I was doing. And then you and I paired on a couple like inbox processing and like weekly reviews and things like that. And it turned out there was just like this whole other level, like several several levels above where I was in terms of uh, OmniFocus competency and just like knowing about lots of little getting things done tips and advice and things like that. That was like super useful for me. Yeah, it's really kind of a Russian nesting doll when you start getting into getting things done. I think David Allen has said that once you pay attention to what has your attention, then you can start paying attention to what really has your attention. And once you have that, then you can start paying attention to what really, really has your attention. You know, you, you start peeling these layers back before you get to the core of, you know, who am I as a human being? What do I want to be true about my life? Which doesn't have anything to do with what email to write next, just in a very loose way. But as you start peeling back those layers and figuring out what you should be working on, what your areas of focus are personally and at work. I think it's just such a healthy way to make sure you're working on the right things and that getting so busy and just working all day doesn't mean that you're working towards the right thing. I think that's a lot of people see these to-do lists and, and methodologies as just ways to like pack more content into any given day. And, and that's definitely not how I see it. It's a way to keep your brain clean and clear so that you can adjust that true north for yourself and know that am i is this really what i want to do do i really want to be head of sales for ben or should i bring up a conversation next week about you know having some extra capacity and i want to do something else to the business right like we probably wouldn't have had that conversation if i hadn't been so clear every week reviewing what my priorities were as a as a person and professional and where i want my career to go uh, are you still open to taking consulting clients for this stuff by the way yeah, I mean, I haven't actually had anyone take me up on it, but I do have a lovely SavvyCal booking link that you can use uh, at stephendolan.com. I set up some stuff there. But yeah, I, I'm trying to figure out who can really benefit from this stuff. But also there's so much to cut through in terms of people who don't, like they're, they're doing the, the quick hacks. They're like, here's how you can get more done in 30 minutes. And here's a thread of 30 things I learned that'll keep you productive. Through. Like, I don't know. It's hard to cut through all that noise and for people to know that you can actually help um, without sitting with them first and tackling, like you were saying, a few items like, oh, I hear what you just said. You think you need to do about that. Is that really what you need to do next? 
Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm happy to plug this thing. Like, I think people, I think if you're doing if you're doing getting things done, particularly in OmniFocus, I think you'd kind of be silly to not like do an hour with Stephen and just get your your setup all tuned and like have him notice some habits that you're doing or like ways you're wording actions that maybe are blocking you from getting them done and things like that. Uh, so you know, check it out. Consider doing it. I think it's good. Hello, everyone. This is Stephen and Ben from the future. After uh, after we recorded, I realized that we didn't talk maybe quite enough about what a chief of staff does. And this, I think, is unique to the individuals, like who the CEO is or who the chief of staff is. But I thought it might be useful to talk about, Stephen, like what you do and, and how you do it for me in particular. So Derek is missing from this part of the conversation because you and I are from the distant future. And we're going to drop this into the show and then get you back to the normal recording. So I'm going to start with by reading a mission description that I wrote for this role, which you prompted me on. Um, I sort of initially sold you on this vaguely defined chief of staff role. And you were like, yeah, I think that roughly sounds right. But eventually you were like, it'd be cool if I had like a list of like what you think success looks like for this role, which is kind of like a great chief of staff question, I have to say. Yes, agreed. I think, yeah, when we first talked about the role, it was kind of, do you want to do more things? And it was like, yes, I would love to do more things. But then when we were, you know, we've been in this hiring craze for the last couple of months. And part of that has been me jumping in and figuring out ways we can improve the process around that. And a big component of it is you need to define what metrics you want to measure a role by so that you can help that person feel confident when they come on board that they're doing a good job. I realized I didn't have that. So yeah, this this was kind of our attempt at what exactly should I be focusing on? How are we going to measure the success of the role year over year? That kind of thing. I'm going to read you the thing that I, that I wrote. I'm going to read everyone the thing that I wrote for you. So this is an email for me to Stephen. Tuple's chief of staff is part commando, part force multiplier, part consigliere. In commando mode, the chief of staff drops into unfamiliar territory to accomplish a difficult task with limited oversight. When something hard needs doing, the chief of staff makes it happen. In force multiplier mode, the chief of staff makes the CEO a more effective version of himself. The chief of staff remembers deadlines, drafts first versions, suggests improvements, and clears roadblocks. The CEO seems oddly effective to outsiders thanks to the chief of staff's behind-the-scenes effort. In consigliere mode, the chief of staff acts as a trusted advisor and sounding board. The chief of staff's privilege is access and context, which lets him weigh in effectively on nearly any matter. How is it to get that email? Definitely a huge relief, I think, because part of it is this role is so multifaceted and there are also a lot of different takes on what the role should do. Like if you go into Google and you just type in chief of staff areas of responsibility, you'll find executive assistants who have risen through the ranks and particularly effective ones will take the chief of staff role all the way to people that are more like technical chief of staffs to a CTO. It's this grab bag of whatever the leader who's hiring needs that person fits into. So yeah, for me, this was really gratifying because I think it nailed down the three areas that I was already focusing on, but not super intentionally and not dividing my effort and making sure I was improving in each of those areas and focusing on them. So yeah, this was like that breath of fresh air of just clarity for what I should be focusing on. I've, I've reoriented my weekly reviews around it. I've reoriented my project lists around it of like how much effort am I spending in each of these areas so that we can adjust and, or at least so that you're bought into where the majority of my time's going. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. This email was, I, I told you, like really hard to write. This took like hours actually to get these, these three bullets like distilled down into what they, what they were. And I, I think it's like you just touched on. These are how you and I work together. Like that's what our relationship is shaped like. But I wouldn't go so far as to like be prescriptive and say like, this is what everyone who is a CEO or like wants a chief of staff should do. This is just kind of like the, the shape of the role for you and me. That, that made sense. Yeah. And I think just to be clear, I know you've talked about it a little bit, but the identifying the weak points you're trying to shore up, I think is really important. And for you, that was, you're very like a visionary, great writer, speaker. You can make good decisions on the fly, I feel. But sometimes the follow through wasn't there or the organization wasn't there to keep the commitments going or you'll just take on too many commitments. So sometimes there's that like, hey, are you sure you want to do this other thing? And so I think what you were looking for is someone who had that brain, like what I come at problems with of almost overly making things concrete, uh, really planning planning things out, having a hyper-organized to-do list. I think it, it helps pull you a little bit in that direction, enough to make you more effective. And I think if you were in a different situation or had a CEO with a different personality, certainly you might want to augment that with a different kind of chief of staff. But I think this is a somewhat common scenario. I think, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's a self-selecting bias thing that most founders would find themselves in the kind of scenario or with the kind of personality you have. That sounds right. Yeah, I, I think that's true. It is the differences, I think, that make it make it work well. I had gone back and forth for a while about sort of feeling bad about my weaknesses, like around organization and follow through and things like that. And for a while, I was like, I sort of would feel guilty about it and think like, oh, I have to get better at these things. And then I was sort of like, well, what if I, what if I just focus on the things I'm good at and like doing and bring me a lot of joy? and hired someone to help me who loves doing the things I don't like doing. And that suddenly like was like a great light bulb moment and has been just like a wonderful thing for me since since starting to work with you. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that a lot of leadership books talk about is do the thing you do well because the thing you don't do well, even though you may not enjoy it and may hate doing it, there's someone who will enjoy the work. I think you and I are a great example of the things that you would kind of dread approaching. You throw it to me and it's it's like a treat. It's like, oh, I haven't done my weekly review in two weeks. Can we hop in and do this together? And for me, that's that's like that's so much fun to get in and go through a getting things done list and make sure everything's clear and, and organized. So I think that's the other takeaway is you should find someone that's really passionate about the stuff, not just someone that's somewhat effective, but someone who really relishes the work that you don't want to do because it otherwise it'll I, I think could quickly lead to burnout. For sure. Yeah. So let's let's go through these three points and maybe just talk about some examples to make sure they're clear. So in commando mode, you drop into unfamiliar territory to get a, a difficult thing done with limited oversight. Like an example of this for me is like, Steven, I've been pouring a ton of time into trying to like hire a Linux developer to like work on the Tuple Linux client. And I'm just like totally burnt out on this project. And I don't, I don't want to think about it, but it really needs to get done. This is like a critical win that we need to get. And you were just like, you just took it and have been like owning that process. And that was like an unbelievable like weight off my shoulders. Yeah, agreed. I think that being able to delegate an entire... Because it wasn't that you delegated hiring to me. It was a specific hire that you felt like you didn't need to have as much direct involvement in, which I think is another one of those things you have to constantly tweak is how much do you want to be involved with the stuff you delegate to a chief of staff versus the stuff you want to be really hands-off. And I think we've gotten better at doing a clearer job of you telling me the things that you want to be involved in and just have me leading or the things that you completely just want off your mind and you just want me to get done. An example of a one that you wanted to be involved in was what you actually originally hired me for, which was the head of sales role. I mean, basically, I was 
chief of staff in commando mode for the first two or three months at Tuple, getting the sales process under control and and I'm still managing that to to a large degree. So I think there's those are like the kind of two examples of something you had a lot of involvement in where you wanted to be reviewing MSAs with me and making sure that you were involved in enterprise deals and decisions versus the Linux hire where it was like, make sure that Spencer, our CTO, is happy. And that's the only requirement. I, and I want and I want to talk to the person before we end up pulling the pulling the trigger and hiring them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think this was this is probably one of the trickier attributes to find in somebody, like someone that I would feel confident that I could hand a f- perhaps ill-defined or like sort of like loosely defined project off to, and feel pretty good about the likelihood of success on it. Yeah, agreed. I think someone who's interested in this kind of role will naturally be highly self-motivated. I'm more of a, if I don't have a full plate of stuff to do at the end of the day, it kind of eats at me a little bit where I would come to you and ask for something else to work on. But I know that there are are definitely people who like want the tickets. I pull out of Jira or Linear, I finish my tickets for the day and then I'm done. So I think you you do have to find the right balance of someone who's willing to just work on something that's very vague and maybe not make very much progress on it on a given day, but just keep plugging away at it until you can make significant progress. I think that's that can be difficult. And, and to make good decisions along the way. Yeah, and decisions that you would make. That's an interesting part of the role too, is you kind of have to study the person that you're chief of staff to and try and put yourself in their shoes when you're making decisions or writing content or copy. It's maybe a little bit more important in the next thing we'll talk about, which is force multiplier mode or even conciliary mode. But I think that knowing your CEO or the leader that you're supporting really, really well, which just takes time. That's not something you can hire for necessarily, but as the person doing the hiring, you have to be really willing to be open and vulnerable and let the person know your weaknesses, how you think, have them over your shoulder while you're writing emails, give really, really direct feedback when you don't have their tone or when you're not jumping into commando mode and doing a really effective job. I think that's a critical piece of it too. So let's talk about force multiplier. So remembering deadlines, drafting first versions, suggesting improvements, clearing roadblocks. This was, I think this is probably where the light bulb went off for me when I was talking to you. It was just like, you were, you're so good. I mean, deadlines in particular and, you know, continuing to push projects forward or like breaking them down into to manageable steps. That was when I was like, oh, I, this is, this is a skill set I really need on, like, on my side. Yeah, I, I think that this piece of it is probably the easiest thing for me to feel self-conscious about being annoying about too, because it's, you know, keeping things hyper-organized and on the rails from a productivity perspective and a project perspective means pinging a lot of people, being that fly on the wall in meetings and making sure people are distilling next actions and not just leaving a meeting with things unsaid, you know, specifically like you in, in a meeting, if I'm making sure that you're not making too many commitments or things like that. This this can be a balance to strike. And I think you have to have a really Again, it's back to building that really strong relationship between the chief of staff and the person who they're supporting. Because if if we didn't have that strong relationship, I would feel a lot more nervous that, you know, coming after you for, hey, we need to do a weekly review. We need to clear the decks. We need to follow up on this thing. Are you sure you want to commit to this? There's just a lot of that kind of stuff that is a force multiplier and externally makes the person you're supporting look a lot better, but internally can cause some frustration, I think, in some especially because naturally the two people will have different views on how valuable that is. Otherwise, you'd, you'd be really great on it. If you valued that and that was your number one priority as organization, you wouldn't need someone to come in and multiply in that way. Yeah. 
it's it's a tricky situation for you because I am that kind of scattered visionary type, and I don't want to give that up. And so when you're like, let's put this on the rails and like, do we want to like lay out a project plan for this and things like that? Sometimes I resist and I don't want to fully, I'm not going to fully resist and I'm not going to fully give in. It's kind of like, I want you to tug me towards success, but I also don't want to lose like this essence of myself that I think is part of what makes me successful. Yeah. It can be a little stifling, I think, unless you have, again, that really clear communication. But even for folks that aren't looking for a really organizationally proficient chief of staff, I think even just delegating small things. Like sometimes you'll need to write a first draft for a blog post or something like that. And I'll offer, hey, do you want me to put together a first draft? I don't think it's, we're still not at the point where that's just natural for you to say, go write a first draft. So that's, again, it's just over time. It just takes time to build that muscle. But it's the kind of thing that once your chief of staff knows your your style of writing, I think that becomes a really huge lever you can pull to just come in and make edits and put your voice or your spin on it or chop out parts. It can save a lot of time on the stuff that maybe isn't the best use of your time to draft from scratch. That has definitely been useful. Like an example of this I'm thinking of is I told you like, hey, there's a list of people I want to keep in touch with, like over like like sort of long-term networking list. And so I just like will e- fire you like emails being like, hey, let's let this guy, this person, this. And you sort of will occasionally ping me like, hey, like it's been a while since you were in touch with this person. And then a couple of times you have drafted like here's a DM for them or like or like here's a few bullet points from like from their Twitter feed. Like they've they've done these three things recently. Maybe you want to talk about those things. And you're setting me up like you're the thing that I think is really valuable there is the lack of a blank page for the for the, the task I'm trying to get done. Like if I think if I see a to do which is like, you know, reach out to so and so and stay in touch with them. It's like, like I'm never gonna want to do that. But if you're like, here's a DM I drafted to them and some extra details that you might want to flesh out on. And I'm like, no, 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 that's that's all wrong. Or like, I wouldn't write it like this. And like, but now I'm editing something, which just feels again easier to get the ball rolling. Yeah. And when it works, when when there aren't a ton of things to to throw out, I think that's just a huge time saver. And it can come across great to the other person because you also may not want to invest the effort to go through their Twitter timeline and their website and their blog and pull out some useful things. It can make a big difference when you're reaching out to someone and make it feel more personal and that, in my mind, is a really great example of force multiplier. Because to the person you're reaching out to, Ben is just super attentive, super personable, like took the time to research. But And you did by hiring someone to do this. Like it's still not, it's not that it's an insincere outreach, but it comes across so much better, I think, to people that you're you're trying to network with, hire, be friends with. Any Anything, I think, is, is valuable to, to helping the business. All right. Consigliere mode, trusted advisor and sounding board. The chief of staff's privilege is access and context, which <laughs> I like that line. So you attend basically almost all of my meetings. Like basically every call I take, you are in on, um, except for a few exceptions, which is really useful because you know all the, thing that's, all the things that are going on. And part of why I wanted to work more closely with you is because it became clear that you had good judgment. And that is a hard thing to find. And this basically lets me have a pair outside of programming. Like we pair on CEO tasks. Like we actually, we have pairing on the calendar and we call it pairing. And it's like, yeah, we, there's, there's things that need to get done and we're going to do them together. And because you have been in all these calls and you know all the things that are going on and because you have good judgment and are a smart person, I think the decisions that I'm able to come to are better at the end of the day because of your input. Yeah, I think the trusted advisor role is 
all of these things take so much time. I think this conversation we're having now would have been really different if we were having it one month into me starting as chief of staff than right now. And it will probably be much different six months from now with, you know, building trust and experience and, and, and not only trust with, with you, but trust with, if there are multiple founders at a company building trust with everyone, because the, you know, when you say the privilege is access and context, that's access to things that other people at the company also have, like other leaders at the company might be hesitant towards letting someone that like, I haven't been able to build a strong relationship with our other co-founders as I have with you just because we work so closely together. So I think that that's probably another word to the wise is make sure that everyone's on board with the idea of a chief of staff. If you want to use them in this kind of way and give them that full access, which I think is really important for the role for force multiplier, commando and consigliere, having that access in the context and, and being able to get into your CEO's head or whoever you're supporting's head is really critical. I mean, the first thing I did when I wanted to make this change was I wrote up a pitch for Joel and Spencer and said, like, this is what I want to do. And this is what that will mean. And talked about the sort of like, this is kind of like, it's not like admitting a third co-founder, but there's like a lot of privileged information or like sort of more sensitive information that you're going to, you were going to get access to. And I had to make sure they were okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a foundation of trust that has to, has to be there. And we did end up actually backing some of that out. Like originally, like I gave you full access to my email. And at one point, Spencer and Joel were kind of like, you know, it's, it, it sucks not having any back channel where we can talk and like, no, it's just the founders. And so we like, we, we actually reversed that. It was useful to sort of play with the boundaries and figure out where that, that should be. And I, I think you also, you touched on something that's important to stress here, which is that we've been doing this for three-ish months. Is that right? Yeah. It's hard to remember when it changed from head of sales to chief of staff, because it was kind of a gradual transition before it was official. But but yeah, not not very long. Long enough to have a general idea of what works and what doesn't, but not long enough to feel like I'm going to go write a book about this or anything like that. Right. So so take all all of this with a grain of salt. We're we're figuring it out still, and and like you said, I would not be at all surprised if this has shifted a, a decent amount some number of months from now. Yeah, exactly. And the amount of time you spend in each role, I think, is going to change over time too. Like these three key areas that you identified in hiring. That process, I think it was a huge force multiplier for me to be involved with you heavily. And in commando mode, I could jump into like the Linux hiring that we were doing. But as we move into more product work and you're doing design, the thing that I think you're really amazing at, and I would love to learn from, but I'm not necessarily going to be a great force multiplier there. You know, I'll find other ways to do that. But I think you have to be okay too with this shifting. And there are going to be some times where you're working on one area really really holistically and spending all of your time on commando mode and like sales. And then sometimes you're going to be doing full force multiplier mode. So that's something hard for me too, because my personality, I, I tend to want to find like, I want to spend a third of my time in each bucket so that at the end of the year, I can tell Ben, Hey, I did a great job in all three of these buckets. You told me I needed to do, but the reality is it's a very fluid thing and you have to be really in tune with the person you're supporting and what's important to them, but also see the business for this living being that has to kind of evolve as as you're evolving in your role. My job is kind of just to pay attention to whatever has the business's attention, which is in general what also will have your attention too. But that can be challenging because it's not very concrete and it takes a lot of communication between you and I of, is this really important? Or this seems like what we're paying a lot of attention to and putting a lot of time into. Do I need to jump in here? And that open feedback is is really critical. Yeah, well... It's March 1st, 2022. We'll see how we feel about it in uh, six months or so. Maybe we'll have you back on. Cool. Yeah, I'd love that. All right. Let's get back to the normal show. 
<laughs> I found trying to like figure out how to adopt a system like GTD, like I, so I haven't read the book, which I probably should do, you know, <laughs> but like I found like there's so many different, so many different people out there claiming that they have, you know, the answer to this, like, like anything, like diets and anything else, you know, like, like this is the system. So like one is just like paralysis of choice. Like, well, which one, which system is the best? I remember at one point I read this, someone shared this book called like the one thing, which I found, I found like, I didn't find that helpful at all. Cause it was like, this seems impractical. Like how can I have one single focus? Like that feels way too high level. And what you were just describing that triggered it in my brain. Cause I was like, yeah, I mean you can like, I think you can have a one thing at a certain level then you have to go down several layers from that, you know, and actually create action items and like getting from like the one thing to the action items is the really hard part. That's like, you know, it's like the drawing the owl <laughs> meme, you know? <laughs> like, and so whenever I try to like adopt a system, I usually kind of don't, don't stick with it because it's just, it's really hard. So like, I guess like any tips, Generally speaking about like how to get over the hump of like adopting a system, is it just a matter of like reading, getting things done and then trying to build a habit or yeah, I guess like what does that look like to actually embrace like a system? Yeah, it's really hard. A lot of the, like if you listen to the OmniFocus podcast or the getting things done podcast, they'll ask guests that all the time, like experts, what, what's the one tip, you know, if someone was going to get started, how would you recommend they do it? And some people will say, oh, just do paper. You just want to do a paper system because it's really robust and you learn the methodology. But, or, or some people will say, just take away the two minute rule uh, from getting things done and just start doing that, which is if something you see is going to take you less than two minutes, just do it then. Don't put it in a system because the overhead will outweigh the cost of doing it. But for me, I don't, I don't see half measures as really getting, it's like if I wanted to convince you, like if you had never uh, brushed your teeth before and I wanted to convince you that like, it is so nice having oral hygiene, Derek, I wouldn't be like, just start by flossing one tooth. Cause like, it's going to hurt. It's going to, your gums are going to bleed. You're not going to notice a difference. But if it was like, go to the dentist, have, have, have a full cleaning of your teeth and then maintain it. I just think that that is such a more compelling because you feel the difference and it becomes addictive and you know what it feels like to be clean. I think it's I, I use that analogy all the time for how it feels mentally to be when my getting things done is just on the rails going forward, full steam ahead. And it, it comes off the rails now and then, you know, I, I'm definitely have time periods like when we were at the ski house for our retreat, my systems kind of fell off a little bit. You leave things in the inbox too long or, or miss a due date here and there. But I think that to have the value of getting things done, reading the book and taking the time to implement it is the only way to really get that mind like water is what David Allen calls it, where you just feel this almost meditative state, kind of like noting in meditation, where when you have a thought and it distracts you, you know how to capture it and distill it really quickly. So there's no overhead. You have a good system like OmniFocus that allows you to capture stuff really quickly I just, I don't know. I, I would love to say there's like a half measure you can take that gives you some of the benefits. And there certainly are lots of people who will have those online, but I think it's, it's one of those, you gotta, gotta go all in to, to really get the value. Hmm. It's really good. So what do you actually use today, Derek, when you're <laughs> like, like, I, I know that you ship stuff at inhuman speeds. I'm assuming you manage your, the actual work stuff in linear. Is that right? Yep. I'm using linear. 
Yeah, like I like I mentioned, I, and I feel a little bit like an imposter here because because I don't have like a full, I don't know, rigorous system that I'm following that's been you know kind of studied and documented by by someone like a David Allen. You know, um, I think like I guess a couple of things inform my process. One is like trying to like at a high level, trying to keep my number of inboxes to a minimum. So I kind of have centralized on, you know, obviously an email inbox that I, that stuff flows through and I have to process that. And then, yeah, try to push a lot of stuff into linear, honestly, like I have, because for a while I've gone through like different, you know, having scattered to-do lists here and there. I keep a personal to-do list in things, which, you know, just syncs with my phone and my computer. And that's more like quickly if I'm just like not at my, workstation and something comes to mind or something comes to light and I just need to drop it to do somewhere I'll throw it there but like that is kind of a a holding area where I try to get it you know if it's if it's any unit of work that I that I want to get done I try to get it filed into linear so that like this is the one place where I can kind of see at a high level what's on my plate what's coming up and and I sort of bucket things you know in there to try to stay organized as best I can um I've been trying to you know, I've been experimenting with like shape up methodologies from Basecamp to like to try to set set priorities on like this is the big thing in the next, you know, six weeks or so. And then everything else is sort of gravy. And I don't know, to me, it's like it does feel like I will go through seasons where I don't feel like I have a strong sense of what the priorities are. And sometimes it's a lot of reactive work, which, you know, if they're small tasks that can delight customers, I feel like those are those are really good to do like just intuitively it makes sense to to bite those off but then you know if i get if i stay in that realm for too long then it starts to feel like okay the the actual like the main mission of like we want to get these big initiatives built and done that and starts to suffer so then i'll kind of swing back to like all right you got to you got to slow down on the reactive work and get back to the big priorities and i think there's always a tension there i've learned i guess the probably one of the bigger things that contributes to shipping speed is like um i feel like i've gotten good at at relentlessly like cutting scope down and and being accepting that things are not perfect but like this is a v1 and we can always file another task to or another set of tasks to do things to bring the v1 up to what the initial uh, vision for it was you know and so getting really comfortable with that and saying no to a lot of other things you know like those are those are things that are not comfortable like you want to you want to agree to do everything as soon as possible and build it as perfect as you can but like realizing that those are um those are not realistic ideals and knowing where to where to shave off scope and and try to keep pushing forward is probably what like helps me ship really fast i see when you're in your text editor working on a feature are do you also have your email up on like another window or another monitor or space on on your computer or because i've always like i'll submit a support request and i'll I'll expect to get something back you know the next day and then instead i get an email from you hey we can work on this this week i've always just thought how are you not interrupting your flow or like you kind of alluded to that death by a thousand paper cuts like you'll still come out and be like hey we're we ship stripe payments this massive undertaking, how, how do you actually organize your desktop to focus when you have to work on a big feature like that? Yeah. So like I, I kind of have a habit of checking in on supports. We have, I've tier one support kind of covered and then things will escalate to me generally when it's like, 
if it's a specific feature request, it always gets es escalated to, well, I guess not always. Like if I've already answered a question about, about a feature request, then it doesn't get escalated to me. But if it's something kind of new, it usually it makes it into my queue. And I check in on that. I kind of go through generally two, two to three deep work sessions throughout a day. And during those times, I try to close as many distractors as I can. So I'm like, I'm not, I don't have the email up during that time. And I say my deep work sessions usually last maybe one to two hours. And then I feel the, the tug to like, okay, let's check in on, check in on support and check in. And, and sometimes, you know, I do my own triaging there, like something, if it's low priority, maybe I won't respond to it at that next check-in. I feel like you've kind of actually, it's just, it's been lucky interactions <laughs> that we've had because sometimes, and I love when this happens, you know, there's customers like write in and they happen to be writing in about the exact thing that's kind of next up on the priority list. And that's where it's like, it feels so good to be able to say that this is in flight actually, and we're shipping it soon. But that is, you know, I, that's not the case in most, most instances. It's like, we have to be more vague and, and it doesn't work out so magically. I bet basically figure like once I'm kind of through a deep work session, I start to feel my focus waning and like I need a break. That's when I switch over to the more like, um, you know, managing email inbox or checking on support. Okay. What about your phone? Like, do you have no notifications turned on for Savvy Cow emails and Help Scout notifications and stuff there? I've always found that to be such a difficult source of distraction when I'm in a deep work session. Like you see the little notification bubble come up and there's that blue bird. I'm like, ooh, mm -hmm. a Twitter thing. Let me just scroll <laughs> for a little while. Yeah, I definitely don't have Twitter notifications on. It's interesting you ask that. I do get notifications when tickets get escalated to me in Help Scout, which I probably need to change that, honestly, because it does, that could be enough to knock me off a a deep work session, but I like want to be responsive too. So this, it's kind of a holding those things in tension, you know, like I don't want to be always eight hours delayed on, on things. Like I want to know when stuff's happening, but I think the notifications are probably a little much, honestly. Taylor is the new person who joined your team, right? Mm -hmm. How, mm -hmm. how are you seeing Taylor working with the support queue and, and team or taking some of that? Or is it going to be pretty strictly like you grab tickets, you work on features, and I'm doing the customer interaction part of it? I do think it's I think it's a good practice to have um, to have kind of everyone able to contribute to support conversations. And, and we do like support is generally not highly technical in nature for Savvy Cal. With Drip, it was it was much more technical. Like if anyone was building a, a complex integration, like we, we needed engineers to be able to chime in. There's not quite that same pressure with Savvy Cal because we just, there's like, in, you know, in embedding on your website requires JavaScript stuff. So there's some complexity there. Or if you're building like a, an API integration or something, you have questions, then that would require a developer. But I think it's TBD on, on how much I loop him into it, but I know for sure I want... I want him to have, you know, the ability to address customers in the support system. I think it's I'm not going there yet because he's still onboarding, but like that is a goal of mine, I think, is to to have some kind of interfacing there. Cool. Yeah, I've always found that really valuable for exercising that empathy muscle, especially if you're writing the features, just knowing having an, a specific instance of someone who expressed something that was bothering them or, or why they wanted something. I've always found that so valuable to 
just exercise that muscle for for developers and anyone who's not interacting with a customer doing like a support rotation that kind of thing i think is really impactful yeah especially when like we're we're trying to craft you know building a user interface is is actually a really really hard thing to do because there's there's patterns that you can copy <laughs> you know there's we we can look at you know interfaces that are known to be really good like the stripe stripe dashboard or something and we can we can observe what they're doing there but there are cases where and I use that as an example because I've like I've like copied a pattern from there that I felt like is clear and makes a lot of sense and then and then come to learn that like a lot of customers aren't understanding what the thing's doing when it's when I'm using that pattern in the savvy Cal UI and you don't you know it looks pretty and it seems like I don't know if Stripe's doing it it should work here but then you know in in hearing from customers you realize like this is not quite on the mark and without that feedback loop it'd be really easy to miss that and just kind of assume that like everyone's understanding the interface yeah so do you keep any kind of once you release a feature like some kind of notion page where you collect feedback about it or is it kind of live in your head for right now of oh i've noticed like 10 people have said they're confused about this button i need to make a note to change that in the future mm -hmm. yeah so it is sort of just you know sipping from the fire hose and and letting things marinate in my head. So I'm not writing all that stuff down all the time. Um, I am pretty aggressive about, about like logging things that when I read them and it seems reasonable, seems like something I might build. I, I like to create a ticket for it. And I know this is like, this is a little bit controversial. People, especially people who, you know, want to keep backlogs small or don't want to maintain a backlog or see them as like backlogs as commitment to doing the work. Um, but for me, it's like, I like to keep this bucket of like, this is something, something that a customer has raised, something that I think we may want to address. And so I want it in a searchable archive where I can drop a com drop links to conversations that have occurred around it and, and then periodically review and like, say like, has this, oh, this hasn't come up in a long time. And like, I don't think it's that big of a deal. So we can like, we can remove this one or, you know, maybe it is like, we're hearing more and more people kind of allude to this this problem where we could we could solve it and so like that becomes the place where i gather information about a potential unit of work that has served me pretty well i mean i will as i'm going through and planning you know what does the work look like in the next cycle i'm i'm you know constantly reviewing that area closing and canceling tasks that don't seem relevant and like you know picking things out of there where we are seeing like i think the impact will be high of of addressing this yeah, I think the first time I heard a staunch opinion against that was actually Ben when you and him were talking about that. I was like, oh, <laughs> fight, fight, fight. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's like, I think it's terminology was a is a big problem. Like backlog has is a kind of a loaded term. Whatever, whatever you call it and whatever system you use for it, I think it is helpful to have like, to keep a record. Like I don't trust my own brain to remember like have five people or 10 people requested this and where were those conversations and if i want to and if i find something's coming up over and over again it's like oh i've had eight different distinct conversations about this let me go through and read the voice of customer for each of those conversations and try to synthesize this like being able to do that is pretty valuable i think and so whatever system whatever system folks want to use whether it's a using a backlog in linear or some other like knowledge knowledge repository i think it's i think it's a pretty helpful exercise 
I think I'm also coming to grips with the fact that I'm not that great at product management. And so <laughs> my opinions are probably not that valuable. <laughs> yeah, I think it's highly dependent on the context too. you know, what kind of business you're in or like I'll preach that we should have backlogs and everyone should keep things out of their head and, and write up summaries of stuff and, and prune it regularly. But then I'll also go through all of my open source repositories and just close every open issue like once every six months. Just like if, if no one has followed up on this and no one else has submitted a PR, I'm not doing it. So there is definitely that that push and pull, I think, between doing what's reasonable. That's all the work stuff. Where does your personal, you know, if you're, I, I want to plan a vacation. Where does that go? That whole process? Hmm. I'm not great at that. <laughs> like that is, that is definitely a weak area for me. My wife is much more skilled at that. So like she's, she's the chief of staff for our household. <laughs> I <would say. laughs> uh, she's very, very, very strong in that logistical area, thankfully. So like for, you know, on the personal side, a lot of that stuff, I get to lean on her for that. Apple notes has gotten really good. And it's like nice because we're both in the Apple ecosystem and you can now like easily share notes. You can create to-do lists. You can add tables. You can men you, you know add mentions for people. Like we did this trip around the new year with a, a couple of friends and we wanted to plan out like, okay, eat, what meals do we want? We need to buy groceries so that we can cook meals and we we're going to divide up the, the duties on doing that. And so it's like we needed to create like, you know, an ingredient a list of ingredients we need to obtain and like a schedule of who has what meals on what day and what activities are we planning to do. And we actually used an, an Apple note for coordinating all of that. And uh, it worked really, really well. Yeah. My wife, Avery and I do the exact same thing because we're both in the Apple ecosystem too. And it's, it's the same dynamic, just, just flipped. Obviously I'm, I'm more of the hyper organized person in OmniFocus and Avery lets me handle everything. But yeah, Apple Apple Notes has been really great. And Apple Reminders, just great apps for for keeping things coordinated between people in a household uh, or a team, I guess that could work too. Because that is where like things or OmniFocus can be really challenging as a team grows is how do you coordinate between people and keep agreements really impeccable without having a ton of delegated tasks just waiting on you to follow up on. That can be a really challenging thing that like Ben, you and I worked a lot to balance in your system. I think there was a moment where you're like, I want to be like Steven and do the system the same way you do it. And then once we had implemented it, you're like, this is too much. Like, this is not, this is not work for me. And we, and we peeled it back. We're on like the fourth iteration of how your OmniFocus looks right now. So I, I think there's a balance with, with family and it's a similar thing with, with teams at work, you know, managing tasks between people can be really challenging for stuff outside of like a linear or Jira where it's very clear, you know, all those like, we need to have an architecture conversation about this product decision and capture notes and next actions and things that can be really tricky. Uh, I'm feeling more pushed to have my stuff in linear as well. Like I'm, I'm feeling more of this, like it's nice to have a centralized thing where everyone knows what everyone is doing as opposed to like, I have my, my secret silo over here and like some of the stuff makes it to public and some of it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, like, on your OmniFocus setup, is there a lot of, is there crossover happening? Like, I'm putting this thing and then I'm cross-linking to a linear ticket? Or, like, how does that, how does the interface in between these different tools work? Or does it not really interface? Yeah, I've tried, I have tried everything. Like, hooking into an API and listening to webhook events and sending them into OmniFocus. And it is definitely, I do not think it's worth the time. Like, like I manage a lot of my work in Pipedrive for the sales part of my role. 
you know, following up with enterprise clients and reviewing MSAs. They have a tasking system in there that's just really good because Ben can dip in and see what's in the pipeline. And that visibility aspect is so important. So rather than duplicating all the deals into my OmniFocus, I just have a daily task on there that is clear the decks in PipeDrive. And it still gives me that endorphin rush when I check it off because I know there's a lot of work behind that one task. And it makes it so that I don't forget to do it on any given day. You know, if things are really hectic, when I go to my forecast for that day, I'll still see that as an item I need to do. Same thing with Help Scout. I'm, I'm not in there as much, but we do have some sales follow-ups that come through there. And there are some things that our head of success, Dorothy, will hand off to me to look at that are important that I get eyes on at least once a day to clear that queue. So it's more of like my OmniFocus for external systems. It's like a, a tickler of just reminding me to go into the various systems. And it's a really cool, concrete way to make sure that I reduce that number of inboxes as much as possible. Are you budgeting your time throughout the day then? Are you like setting, creating calendar events saying during this time, I'm going to work on this, this clearing the deck, say, or whatever? How are you like synchronizing your, your tasks for the day with your actual schedule for the day? Yeah, that kind of thing has never really benefited me because I think one of the things that people who work with me like is that there's like there's no interruption that's going to leave me feeling overwhelmed the ability to pivot on a dime and like stop working on something and help Ben review something else is really valuable in this kind of role where you're kind of specializing in being a generalist like it's it's a very weird place to be I think for most people like if you're indie hacking on a product certainly like having a focus block of time I'm going to work for on the most important feature from you know, 10 to two every day. I think that is really impactful and you have to be really rigorous about putting on do not disturb and not getting distracted. But if you're in a role, I mean, even like, you know, CEO, like the role that Ben's playing, I mean, there is some product design time that you have to block off to do deep work, but there are so many interruptions and things that come in that you kind of can't fight it at a certain point with certain roles. You just kind of have to let it happen and have systems that are robust enough to handle that. That kind of reminded me like another thing that I have gradually started to do more and more of and get better, get better at over time, I think, is optimizing for like being able to context switch easier. Like this is something that developers talk about a lot where like the amount of like cash that you need to load up into mental RAM, you know, before you can get deep into a project can sometimes be really high. And so like part of that, part of my strategy is to always to break things, relentlessly break projects down into smaller chunks and like ship them into production, like big giant branches are, are, I, I try to avoid those at all costs because it's like, if I step away, if I have to step away quickly for an interruption and come back, sometimes that can be enough to like totally mess up what you're trying to hold in your head. But if you're working on a smaller chunk and you can like quickly scan over the pull request, I like open pull requests as early as possible. So I can always use that as, as a place to like review it and review the diff and get right back up to speed on what I was, where I was at. Yeah. So like it's that, that feels like a muscle to build up where you can, um, break things down in small pieces, ship them into prod as you go, maybe behind feature flags, if you need to like make sure it's not surfaced in the UI or whatever. And, um, and then like try really, really hard to make sure that, that you can, you can get back into something relatively quickly. Yeah. And it's funny because I think no one would argue with that position on software development, like break things down into small pieces, keep it in, you know, like with agile, like two week sprints, we want to be able to pivot really quickly with customer feedback. Everyone be like, yes, that's great. That's the right way to build a product. But then you'll look on someone's to-do list 
and hire new developer will be the only line item there. And I just think it's so funny. It's like people not keeping a calendar. Like everyone has a calendar. It's just the things you don't want to forget about that you have to do on a specific date. And we know our brains are terrible at keeping track of it. So it goes somewhere, but no one extends the same thing to their general tasks that you still have commitments for that still matter from a career perspective and from, you know, keeping in touch with friends. I think it's funny, like the, the things that people will just nod along with like agile, small chunks of development work, keeping a calendar, like, yeah, of course. But then as soon as you take that one step more to not using your head as an office for everything else, people are immediately very skeptical. Like, I don't have time for that. I, I don't, I don't want to see all those things in one list. Like, I don't, I don't want to manage it and curate it. It's, it's funny to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think with that nice long gap, I think we should uh, probably wrap it up. <laughs> I think it's a sign. I could probably keep talking for honestly like another hour about this stuff, but I know uh, <laughs> that we all have well, things Stephen, to Stephen, when you eventually start your productivity podcast, you can have Derek on and really nerd out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One day when I want to take on a, yet another side project. <laughs> Put that on your list. Start podcast. Uh, right? That's what you're supposed to do, right? I can't. That, that one's going in the trash. Not enough time. It'll, it'll come up again in the future. There you go. There no, you no. Go. It has to live in the backlog. It's important that you thought of this one time. <laughs> <laughs> and every time someone tells you to start a podcast, you can make a little note that says, Derek told me to start a podcast. Actually, that's not a terrible idea. Uh, <laughs> it's true. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, Stephen. It was fun having you chat with Derek and uh, have me mostly be an observer. Yeah, this was great. It, it was nice to be a, a participant. I don't know what I'm going to do when this episode drops. I don't know what I'm going to do for the next time I'm in the car afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Play it for your wife. She'll love that. Yeah, there yeah, exactly. Cool. All right. Notes of the show. Cool. Notes of the show can be found at artofproductpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. Bye.